several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow Time for your weekly grape encounter And I must tell you I really, really, really love this time of year Not because it's the thick of the holiday season But rather because it's the time That the top wine magazines Release their top 100 lists Of best wines in the world These lists are great places To find truly amazing wines At reasonable prices Part of the judging criteria is identifying wines that are both good values and not too difficult to find. Of all the top wine lists that are out there, few can compare to Wine Spectator's Top 100 list. Their amazing editors sift through around 16,000 wines and narrow it down to 100. I can say with absolute certainty that their final choices are rock solid and present wines that you absolutely will not be disappointed in. So how exciting is it to have on the line Bruce Sanderson, esteemed senior wine editor of Wine Spectator magazine, to take us through both the process and the picks. Bruce has been with Wine Spectator for nearly two and a half decades. He really knows his stuff, and he joins us now. Hey, Bruce. Welcome to Grape Encounters Radio. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. Nice to have you on. You guys just released the top 100. I was pouring through it the last couple of days, and wow, I think there are a lot of interesting things to talk about here, uh, maybe some big surprises. How does it differ from your perspective from lists that you've had in the past? Well, I think that each year the list is a snapshot of the world of wine. So it's going to be a reflection of areas that have terrific vintages. It's going to be some comeback stories. It's going to be some wineries that may have had changes in generations or ownership or winemakers. And for that reason, they may be making better wines. You know, we look at a number of factors when we determine the list. Let's talk about those factors for a second because I've poured over you know, some of the videos that you've released and some of the things that Wine Spectator has written about how you actually go about preparing this list. It's super complicated. And I think you get in something like 16, is it 16,000 wines that come in? Yeah, we're tasting about 16,000 wines a year. Wow. But our starting point for the top 100 is wines that are outstanding. That is, they rate 90 points or higher. That narrows it down to about, uh, say, somewhere around uh, 5,000, 5,500. Are we uh, talking about wines that people are just submitting to Wine Spectator for a general review? Or are they submitting it with the idea of getting on this list? or I guess it's probably both. It's a combination of both, definitely. They're submitting the wines for general review, and uh, we have a process that they go through, and, and we approve the wines beforehand before they actually send us the samples. 
and then we review the wines, and then we, we look at uh, at that pool, as I said, uh, that pool of 90-point-plus wines, and uh, we also narrow it down to an even smaller group of, let's say, a dozen or 15 or 16 wines that we will then consider for the wine of the year in the top 10. Just because you have a 90-plus score, you don't choose the wine of the year based solely on who has the highest score. There are a lot of other factors, right? That's correct. We, we have four factors that come into play. Obviously, score is a reflection of the quality of the wine. We also take the price into consideration. So a lot of wines today are super expensive and just by definition, you know, that they won't make it on the list. And then we also look at the availability of wines and that could be either the, the number of cases produced for a domestic wine or the number of cases imported for a wine, say, from Europe or South America or South Africa. And then we have something also that we call the X factor. And we're looking for some excitement, something that's different, something that's new or changed. And, you know, that's a little less tangible, but that also comes into play in narrowing down the list. Give me an example of what, you know, the X factor might be, maybe a couple of examples. What would be that standout thing? Maybe there are even some wines that are on the list this year that have that X factor that, you know, is really a knockout. Definitely. I mean, if you look at our wine of the year, the uh, Duckhorn Merlot Napa Valley Three Palms Vineyard, that's a grape that has been maligned for the last decade. It's a winery that's changed hands and actually has corporate ownership. But in reality, it's a vineyard-based wine. When Dan uh, Duck and Margaret Duckhorn started the company in uh, 1976, they sourced Merlot from Three Palms Vineyard. So that's been a constant throughout. And the winemaker and the uh, general manager have been there for a number of years as well. So there's been that consistency throughout. That's the X factor there. I think it's so exciting to see a Merlot at the top of that list. And as you said, it's a grape that's been tremendously maligned. And, you know, one of the things you probably don't know about me is my wife and I actually run a brick and mortar wine shop. And that's a place that we created for listeners to come and hang with us and experience some of the wines that we feel it's important for them to get to know. And Merlot is at the top of the list in terms of wines that I think people don't understand. And yet we make a ton of Merlot in this country, well, all over the world. Yet it's the one wine that people will come into a wine bar and say, I'll have anything but Merlot. Low. And they just, just they don't get it. And the fun part is, I'm sure a lot of other people are doing this that operate wine bars. If you pour Merlot blind to somebody that says they don't like Merlot, chances are they're going to love that wine. What's changed? Well, I think people are more adventurous today. I think the younger consumer is definitely more adventurous. They're willing to try different grape varieties. They're willing to try different wine regions. They're willing to try different styles of wine. And, uh, you know, that makes for an exciting mix. And that also, it allows areas like the south of Italy, for example, to become more recognized for its wines. These are grape varieties that don't exactly roll off the tongue, but... um, you know, they make they make very interesting wines and wines that are very reflective of their area. You mentioned the fact that they don't roll off the tongue. And, you know, that's always something that I've struggled with. My foreign language skills are not what I wish they could be. How much does that discourage people away from a wine? And, and especially taking into consideration how things have changed with the millennials embracing, you know, interesting wines and wines they've not heard of before. I think that, you know, on one hand, Certainly, if you have a name like Merlot or Chardonnay or, for example, from Burgundy, an appellation like Bone or Pomar, that's easy to say. People tend to gravitate towards it. But 
I also think that, you know, if there's a story behind the winery or a story behind the region or a story behind the grape variety, I think that's captured the attention of younger wine drinkers, say uh, millennials, you know, who are very interested in something different and, and also not necessarily saying, well, I drink Merlot or I drink Pinot Noir or I drink Chardonnay. They're willing to try different things and just for the diversity. How much does a publication like yours have to rethink your strategy and the tone of the magazine and, you know, really everything that you do to take into consideration this explosion of interest that's coming from young wine drinkers? Well, it's a constant search on our part. I think, you know, our mandate has always been to cover the benchmark wines of the region, uh, of any given wine region, and also find the values because we know that, that our readers and are looking for value. And what we've done over the years is we have assigned our editors to various regions. So, you know, we've tried to become, uh, we've tried to have some longevity and become experts in, in the areas that we cover. And we travel to the regions, we visit wineries, we visit vineyards. And by doing so, we try to discover new, either new producers or new regions or new grapes. And, you know, I think a perfect example of that is New Zealand, where, right. you know, they, they, they burst on the scene. I'll say about 25 years ago, and uh, and established a, a reputation for Sauvignon Blanc. But more recently, they've really been um, an up and coming wine area with Pinot Noir. Let me ask you this: the, there was an interesting thing that was written about you in Forbes magazine. They said that uh, you were the, uh, I think they said, best taster of Burgundy and Champagne in the world. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's quite an honor to get a, to, to, that's quite an honor uh, coming from Forbes magazine. So let's talk about champagne type wines for a second or, or sparklings. I've noticed that there are some really beautiful Pinot based sparklings coming from New Zealand. How exciting are those to you? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, David, I should let you know that I no, I no longer cover uh, champagne or sparkling wines for the magazine, okay. although I, I, I did for 10 years. It's now uh, my colleague, Alison Napius, who's been covering them since 2010, but I, I do drink a lot of them, and uh, no, I think, it's, I think it's great when you find something that really surprises you, that you, know, you don't expect, like a, a sparkling Pinot Noir from New Zealand. And you, you know, you're not expecting it to be anything special, and then it just it surprises you. I tell you, I, 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 I've had a few, and they just they blow my mind. They're just so good. Anyway, we're going to take a break real quick. We're talking to Bruce Sanderson, senior um, uh, senior editor at Wine Spectator magazine, and we're going to dig uh, much deeper into Wine Spectator's top 100 list when we return with Grape Encounters Radio. Grape Encounters is 100% estate-grown. We have, however, removed the pretentiousness and added a healthy dose of fun. David will be right back as soon as he's through unfriending anyone who doesn't love wine. Oh, I I guess this could be a very short break. He's setting down the wine glass and picking up the microphone. 
Here's your Grape Encounters host, David Wilson. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and wow, what a pleasure to have on Bruce Sanderson, senior editor from Wine Spectator magazine. There is always a Wine Spectator sitting on my coffee table. I can't throw it away, actually. It's one of those magazines, you, you don't throw it away, you just keep it for life. It'll be there when I'm dead. A giant pile with snow at the top. It'll be so big. But Bruce, let's jump into the top 100 list, and first of all, focus on some of the regions that really shine on on the list, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about some that uh, didn't make the list or didn't have as uh, great a showing as one would expect. What are the standouts? Generally, each year, the bulk of the list is comprised of three countries, the U.S., and most of those wines are from California, right. France, and Italy. You know, again, that reflects the wine world in the U.S. market. So, you know, probably three out of four wines that everybody drinks today is from the U.S., either from California or Washington State or New York State. And then in terms of imports, it's always a a neck-and-neck battle between France and Italy in terms of their dominance of the uh, imported market. So, and of course, there are a lot of very good quality areas in, in each of those places, Napa Valley, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Tuscany, Piedmont. So it's no surprise that we're going to find a lot of wines from those countries. You know, and that's going to change. That's going to shift a little bit. So, for example, this year we had uh, we had a pretty good representation from California based on the 2014 vintage, which was a, an excellent vintage there. Our studios are located in the Paso Robles wine region. I was stunned by how many Paso Robles wines made that list. I mean, it was tremendous. That's an area that's really exploded in the last 10 years, I would say. You know, if we go back, I don't remember which year it was off the top of my head, but we had the, um, the Saxum was our wine of the year. You know, I mean, I think that really heralded the arrival of, of Paso Robles. And now you can't really talk about Rhone grape varieties in, uh, in California without talking about Paso Robles. A very pleasant surprise was to see Dow on the list, and they've been trying very hard to compete in the Cabernet market with uh, Napa, and they made the list this year. Another, you know, probably not a surprise, Turley on the list, making some incredible wines. I mean, there there was just great representation from the Central Coast and, you know, obviously great representation from Napa as well. I was surprised to not see much showing from Washington and Oregon. What are your thoughts about that? Those are areas that, again, they're going to fluctuate slightly from year to year. I thought there were actually a lot of exciting wines from Oregon on the list this year. One of them was Residence, which is, uh, that's the new wine from Oregon that uh, Louis Jadot makes. They bought that property a couple of years ago, and now they're making some interesting wines there. And the other one is Lingo Franca, which is Larry Stone's project. And, uh, you know, so I think there are a lot of interesting things that are going on in Oregon. Also in, in Washington, I mean, Washington produces a lot of great values, but it's, it's, it's going to ebb and flow slightly from year to year. Let's talk for a, m- a moment about another, another region that was not in your list of the most popular regions in the world, and that's Australia, making a tremendous amount of wine. Unless I'm overlooking something here, I don't see a lot of Australian wines on the list this year. Again, that's, you know, that's an area that's going to, you know, sometimes you'll find eight, nine wines from Australia on the list, and then other other years it'll be maybe four or five. You know, it's going to vary, and, and I think that a lot of 
The Australian wines that do make it on the list are value-oriented wines. We have five of them on the list this year. You know, looking at prices, they're all under $25. I love that the story of this list is accessibility of wine, because, you know, it's easy to have a great wine and pay $300 for it, but not so easy when it's, you know, $45, $20, you know, $35. This is the one thing that I hope that people who are listening will go online and and check out the list, because you're going to be able to find most of these wines in a good in a good wine shop or they can probably get it for you we try to again you know uh, the availability is an important factor when we when we determine the wines you know, we can't guarantee that they're available because obviously some of these wines were reviewed back in in February March April of 2017 but we definitely you know we don't want people to tear their hair out and and say you know there were like seven cases made and uh, how are we supposed to find it exactly so um, you know, you can. Th- there are definitely wines on the list that are that are much more limited. That are a few hundred cases, either imported or made. But then, you know, you have something like the um, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, which is a hundred thousand cases. So that's something that should be widely available. It always amazes me how they can have such tremendous continuity with that wine and make so much of it. It's just mind blowing to me. I agree with you. It's one thing to make great wine in very small quantities. It's another thing if you can make it. Cons- Consistently and make it well, you know, in, in a much larger volume. That, that deserves to be rewarded. We're going to talk in just a, a minute about the top 10, but I, before we uh, take a break, I wanted to get your thoughts on the diversity of the wines on the list and how do you go about weighing wines that are very different from one another, a German Riesling versus Pinot Noir from another region, you know, versus a Spanish wine. I mean, they're they're so different and get them to rank them against one another has got to be a daunting task. How do you approach that? We have each of our editors specializes in, in a region or regions. Um, so they build up expertise in those areas. And the reviews that we base our selections on are their individual reviews. You know, we trust their judgment and, and their expertise in those areas. And the other thing is we're, we're looking for diversity. We want to have an interesting list. Uh, if, As I said, you know, U.S. and France and Italy probably makes up about more than half the list, maybe 60% of the list. But we like to find interesting things. And, for example, this year, for the first time, we have a wine from Uruguay. Yes, I saw that. Fantastic. Is there some wrangling that goes on in the boardroom when you start to narrow this down? Do, do the editors, you know, fight for some of the wines that they're passionate about? Absolutely. When we do the top 10 tasting, it's a blind tasting. We invite all our senior editors the New York office, and we sit down and we taste through usually about a dozen to, say, 15 wines, and then we'll tally our scores on them, and then we start to discuss. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting to see how the uh, ideas change, how the alliances form, the arm twisting that goes on. And I would say that, you know, I mean, if you, if you have 10 people in the room and they're, and they're all passionate about wine, they're probably not all going to agree that on the same wine. Does anybody get hurt? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
No, we keep it civilized. All but, right. But there's, there's, it, 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 it definitely gets it gets passionate. That's All right. For sure. Is everybody spitting or does anybody swallow? No, we're spitting. Okay. All right. Yeah. Hey, we're talking to Bruce Anderson, senior editor at Wine Spectator magazine, and we're going to come back in just a second and we're going to talk about the top 10 on this top 100 list from Wine Spectator. Believe me, folks, if you're looking for great wines, this is a list you can absolutely count on these results to be very reliable. These are going to be wines that you're going to love unless, you know, for some reason you don't like a particular varietal, but pick the varietals you like or do a little experimentation. Either way, it's a great list and it's online at winespectator.com. We'll be back in just a second with more Grape Encounters. The best way to avoid spitting wine is to avoid wines unworthy of being swallowed. David will be right back in a spit second. Oops, my bad. Make that split second. Winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Boy, I'll tell you what, I always look forward to this time of the year because it's the time when the Wine Spectator Top 100 list comes out. And what a pleasure and honor, really, to have Bruce Sanderson on, senior editor from Wine Spectator. And, and Bruce, you've been with the magazine for, I think, 24 years. Is that right? 24 years next week, David. Holy smoke. That's a long time to hold <laughs> one job. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. Let's jump into the top 10 of this list. And I'm so excited to see that number 10 is from my uh, neck of the woods, just right down the street. Can we start there? Yeah. I mean, this is a, a classic example of what's been going on in the Paso Robles area, where you have... Um, a blend of different grapes, and uh, it's a guy, uh, Eric Jensen, who uh, who gave up a career as a, a real estate broker and concert promoter in Southern California, moved north and, and started farming grapes. And uh, he's farming the, the vineyards biodynamically, and he specializes in Rhone varieties, and this particular wine, the Oublier, is a blend of Grenache, Mourvedre, and Cunoise, which is uh, one of the more obscure grapes that goes into Chateau Neuf du Pape. Right. And, you know, it's just one of these wines that has tons of flavor and personality, and we love the fact that uh, it's a bit of an outlier in the sense it's, it's a, a Rhone blend and not a more classic style like some of the Bordeaux or the um, California Chardonnay. But the Rhone blends are literally on fire right now. People are just yes. are just gobbling them up, and there's more and more of the GSMs especially being made, and people can't get enough of them. It's really exciting, I think. Yeah, it is. Okay, let's uh, let's go to number nine. We got to uh, actually uh, hustle through this. The Paul Meyer Chardonnay from Napa. Number nine, you know, great story. Um, Jason Paul Meyer's been making these wines for uh, a long time, and uh, it's it's you know one of these very rich, opulent styles, and uh, it's really classic California Chardonnay. And Chardonnay's an interesting interesting wine because these days we have three choices in Chardonnay, it seems like. We've got a lot of oak, not too much oak, and then absolutely no oak. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're going to find a, a little bit of oak in this one. Yeah, just a bit. Let's jump into it. And number eight, what do we have here? Also from Napa. Now, this is an interesting wine because it's not, uh, it doesn't come from the heart of Napa Valley. It's in the southeastern corner. It's a gentleman who is a cookware tycoon. His name is Stanley Chang, and he bought this vineyard, planted it to Bordeaux varieties. And what's particularly appealing about this wine is its price. Times when uh, it's easy to find a California Cabernet that's upwards of, of $200, $250. Right. This one is less than $170. What do you think it's worth? <laughs> No, I mean, what now would, now, what would, what would you price it at? Probably worth a lot more now. <laughs> well, yeah. well, there's that. As, as, as the number eight wine. Yeah, okay, how about number seven? This is a Saint-Emilion from Bordeaux. Stefan von Neitberg is the proprietor there, and he's been elevating the quality along with uh, consulting enologist Stefan de Renoncourt. They're just hitting on all cylinders right now. And 15 and 16 are getting a lot of hype as vintages, but there are uh, definitely a lot of good 2014 Bordeaux out there, and they shouldn't be overlooked because, again, they're going to look very inexpensive compared to the 15s. Yeah, just $61 for this wine. Number six. This is a this is one of the great estates from uh, the central Loire Valley where they specialize in Chenin Blanc. It's from a town called Vouvray. And they make a, a number of different styles from bone dry to uh, super sweet dessert wines and also a, a sparkling style. And this is actually a demi-sec, so there's going to be a little bit of residual sugar, but also uh, really bracing acidity. So it's beautifully balanced, and you get this these nice floral and honey aromas and flavors, and then this kind of steely minerality. I am excited to taste that one. This one really has my attention. All right, we've got uh, just a few minutes left. So number five. Number five is from uh, a guy, Louis Burial, who has, has really raised the standard in uh, the village of Gigondas. And, you know, th- these guys live in the shadow of Chateauneuf de Pop, but thanks to him and a few of, of his colleagues, uh, you know, these wines are really worth looking for. And again, good value. And I love the I love the description of this wine. Uh, tobacco, rosemary, dark currant, fig fruit, muscular and energetic, my kind of wine. All yeah. right. Uh, let's see. Casanova Denari is number four. The 2012 vintage in Brunello was really a nice vintage. You know, it's, it was a vintage that it started out cold, but then it got hot and dry and it's a vintage that sometimes the 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 blended wine from an estate did as well or better than some of their single vineyards and this is a this is a case uh, with Casanova de Neri. I like this wine because it, it sources grapes from different parts of the estate and uh, more clay soils than uh, his Tenuta Nuova vineyard, which is further south in the Appalachian and can be much warmer. So I think this really retained the freshness, and that's what made it so exciting. Number three. Chateau Coutet from Barsac. I mean, who, who doesn't love a, a good sweet wine? Yeah. Uh, and, and Barsac, with, with more limestone in the soils, uh, has a, a little bit bit more vibrancy and structure than uh, Sauterne. You know, it's, it's, it's going to appear slightly lighter and less rich, but with a lot of flavor, very complex. And in uh, position number two, a Syrah from Walla Walla Valley. Charles Smith is making some great wines from different vineyards, and this wine tasted blind. You might confuse it with a Northern Rhone. I mean, it had tons of, of that Syrah character, you know, meaty, black pepper, inky, really a delicious wine. And we are now, uh, let's have a drum roll now because we are at number one. Wow, I know this wine. The Astonishing Duckhorn Three Palms Vineyard Merlot. 
comes from Napa Valley. It comes from a, an area in the northern part of Napa Valley, not far from Calistoga, which is the warmer part. But in actual fact, this wine is very elegant. They had a lot of floral, cherry, berry aromas, really good acidity. It's not a big, rich style that you might expect from Napa Valley. It's got a lot of finesse. And I think uh, a lot of that comes from the vineyard. It's it's really a special place for Merlot. Let me ask you a question. When the movie Sideways came out, we had what was called the Sideways Effect take place. Everybody said that that was a, it was a terrible thing that happened. It, it actually caused terrible things to happen to Merlot. In my opinion, it's just the opposite. I feel like we've got the best Merlot available right now that we've ever had because of that. Because anybody that wasn't making superior Mer- Merlot, not everybody, but a a good portion of them went in other directions. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I think you, you probably either got out of the game or you upped your game. You know, if you if, if you were specializing, you continued to do it and continue to, to hone it and do your best. And, you know, if you had jumped on the bandwagon when it was a fad, you probably got out of it, you know, and, and, and moved on to something else like Pinot. <laughs> when was the last time a Merlot was at the top of the list? We've had a number of... Merlot on the list, but when I think of Merlot, you know what comes to mind is is Chateau Petrus in in uh, in Pomerol, Seto Sorio in uh, Italy in Tuscany from the Bulgari area, Laparita from Castello Diama in Chianti Classico. But you know those wines are all getting pretty expensive. Yeah, now. exactly. Is it, what's the most expensive wine on this list? I, I think it's everything's under a hundred bucks, right? No, there's. Yeah, a, I don't see much here. I'm, Thumbing through yeah, it. Yeah, there'll be, uh, let's see, we've got uh, a couple over 100. And I would say, you know, usually, again, that's why you'll find them a little further down on the list because right. of the higher price. So Chateaulet Velasquez, for example, at $135. That's a Saint-Julien 2014. And, um, and then we have the Ravana Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley 2014 is $165. Yeah, for the most part, they're under a hundred dollars, and a lot of them are under fifty, and and a lot of them are are under um, you know thirty dollars. The value component is a big component of the top one hundred. Yeah, that's that's the most fantastic thing about the list. Okay, we've just got seconds left. If there's one takeaway from this year's top one hundred, you know, one thing that you could say about it that you think is thrilling, interesting, or exciting, what would it be? I think this is not a shopping list, but a list of, of wines and wineries to watch. It's something to, you know, put in the back of your mind and, and go out and try a couple of bottles. And if you don't find this particular vintage, try the next vintage. And uh, I, th- I think, you know, it will give you a good roadmap for finding some interesting wines in the future. Uh, well, listen, thank you very much, Bruce. I, I really appreciate you being on and giving us such a thorough recap of uh, the list and especially the, the top 10 uh, you know, what a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, this is uh, this is really exciting stuff. I, I, like I said, I always look forward to this time of the year when the list comes out. And thank you guys very much for doing the great job that you do. My pleasure, David. Thank you. And, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll wait till next year. Now we'll do it again. <laughs> right. And then uh, and then restaurants come out at some point as well. Yes. Yeah, that that'll be in our August issue. All right. We have to w- we'll have to wait a while for that. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to continue on with Grape Encounters. My thanks. Uh, deepest thanks to Bruce Anderson, senior editor from Wine Spectator Magazine, my favorite publication to read. And I'm not just saying that. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Remember, as much as you may love wine, it is not the answer to your problems. 
unless the problem is you're out of wine. Your grief encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. You don't have a problem with that, do you? know that you can visit us in person right in the heart of the central coast wine country of california we can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels introduce you to some epic wines in person help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio Okay, that last one was a, a stretch. Here's David. Okay, everybody, back with Rape Encounters Radio, and I thought after talking to our esteemed guest from Wine Spectator, it might be fun to present my own top ten list. And I poured through hundreds of wines and looked for the wines that I just am so taken aback by. Now, you know, when you prepare a top ten list or a top 100 list, obviously there are literally millions of wines out there that you could choose from, so these are very subjective things. I do want to say that the wines that I'm going to talk to you about right now have a special place in my heart because they, for different reasons, are really, truly standout wines. And I'm going to start now with number 10. It is Conundrum. And this particular conundrum is the 25th anniversary, which is made by the Wagner family. And the Wagner family is known best for their wines under the Camus label. If you love great wine, you know the Camus label. They come out of the Napa Valley. They used to call this Camus conundrum, and then it just developed a life of its own, and they decided that they were just going to call it conundrum instead. And this particular version, it's the 2014 white wine version of Conundrum. Now, it's a a slightly sweet wine, so it's for somebody who likes a little bit of fruit in their wine. They never tell us what's in this wine. It's a table wine, but I think if you haven't tried Conundrum, you'll love it. No matter where you are in the U.S., you can get it. Just go to a, a fine wine store, and it will be there for you. The next wine is a wine I was not familiar with until just this year. It's my number nine wine, but the wine is actually called number one, number one cuvee. And this comes to us from New Zealand, and it is a sparkling wine from the Marlborough region of New Zealand. It is 100% Chardonnay, and that, of course, is what they mix champagne with. This is made method champenois, so it's exactly the same methodology of making wines that you would find in champagne. What we get here is a totally spectacular wine. It's a bubbly, it's in a beautiful bottle, and it is at a very, very modest price. My number eight comes from a winery in Monterey, the Santa Lucia Highlands to be exact, It is a wine made by Rath. It is a rosé of Pinot Noir. This particular rosé is just absolutely beautiful. I remember interviewing the winemaker there named Sabine, and she sat and did the interview with a pet chicken on her lap. It was one of the most memorable interviews that I've ever done. Okay, number seven. It's from a group called Baker and Brain. If you see any wines with a Baker and Brain label on it, buy them. There's nothing that is not absolutely spectacular from Baker and Brain. But what I particularly love is their 2014 Syrah. It's the Le Mistral Vineyard Syrah. Oh my gosh, they know what they're doing. If you love Syrah, this is one of the best Syrahs that you will absolutely ever taste. Okay, coming in at number six. 
This is also a local wine from the central coast of California. This particular wine is from Vina Robles, which has a terrific amphitheater here that does some incredible concerts there. They make a lot of wines that are, you know, I think on the commercial side, I have to admit that, but they have some wines on their top tier that are just unbelievable. And the one that I have chosen for number six is called Swindero, S-U-E-N-D-E-R-O. This wine is 71% Cabernet Sauvignon, 20% Petit Verdot, and 9% Malbec. This was on Wine Spectator's top 100 list, but this wine is absolutely incredible from Vina Robles. You can get it online. Should be able actually to get it in fine wine stores as well. Number five comes to us from Sonoma County. It is from Roth, and it is a red wine blend. It's just called Heritage. It is, I believe, a Bordeaux blend, but this is, again, another case where they don't tell us everything that I would like to know about the wine. If you're a Cabernet lover or a lover of any Bordeaux-style wines, you will love this wine from Roth. Very nicely priced, very delicious, very big recommendation on my list. Another local entry from this region, but it is the 2014 Brady Vineyard Cabernet Franc. This is our number four wine made by a fellow named Don Brady. We've had him here at Grape Encounters. He makes just terrific wines. I've never tasted anything that he's made that wasn't absolutely delicious. This Cabernet Franc is the perfect expression of what Cabernet Franc is supposed to be. It's one of my absolute favorite grape varietals. The 2014 Cabernet Franc coming in at number four. The next wine that we're going to talk about is from Dariush. This is a Napa Valley Merlot 2013. It's not cheap, okay? But it is a Napa Valley Merlot that really proves the point that Merlot is something that all of us should be drinking. If you are soured on Merlot, then I would say that $80 to $85 will change your mind forever because Dariush has it right. In the number two position, it's called Amankea. It's a reserve red blend, Malbec and Cabernet. It's a 2015. This wine is a joint effort between Domaine Baron de Rothschild and Nicolas Catania. So we all know Baron de Rothschild you know, one of the great winemakers in France. But Nicolas Catania, you might not be as familiar with. He is one of the great makers of both Cabernet and Malbec in South America. He's a very well-respected. It's the Reserve Red Blend. All right, and in first place, you know, this is a wine you can get a lot of places. It's about, uh, you know, around $48. Called Emelo Napa Valley Merlot, a second Merlot in our top 10. This is an inky, dark, fruity, delicious, powerful velvet glove on an iron fist wine. It's got the ugliest label I've ever seen. Emelo comes again from the, the Wagner family. It's from Rutherford. It is so delicious. If you're a Merlot lover... This is the piece de la resistance. If you're not a Merlot lover, this is a game changer for you. It's E-M-M-O-L-O Merlot. All right, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week with our own little top 10 list. You can get these wines that I just talked about pretty much any place. If you uh, didn't write all this down, you can go to grapeencounters.com and you can uh, listen to the podcast over again. Or I'd be happy to help you. You can just go to grapeencounters.com and uh, send me a note and we can help you get these wines very easily. We carry them. I I don't want to turn this into an infomercial. You can go to your local wine shop and get them. But if you can't find them there, we'd be happy to help you. These are stunning wines, all 10 of them. You know what? The next thing I'm going to do is uh, sign out and we're going to enjoy some of this delicious wine. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend and uh, we will see you next week right here on Grape Encounters Radio.
You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 